Hola, je m'appelle Jordan. Welcome to episode 35 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. Uh, I'm going to be very brief in this intro today. Uh, the episode is with Javier Reyes of Animals as Leaders, who has been on tour with Matt and Periphery over the past month. Uh, and the episode is the two of them. I think some special guests as well, as they do this uh, from the back of Periphery's tour bus. Not really sure why everything happens on the back of a tour bus. I think at one point it would be nice uh, for maybe an episode to be recorded in the middle of the tour bus, but that is for people like Matt and Javier who actually have tour buses to decide on. Um, But I would appreciate their insight on that. Anyway, uh, Rode Microphones, they are the official sponsor for episode 35. They have been with us from the very beginning and have been so supportive, providing us with all of the audio equipment that we have been using week in and week out uh, to create the content for you to consume through your podcast app of choice every week. Uh, R-O-D-E.com, Rode.com. Wow. They make it so easy. But honestly, like we got chocolatecroissants.com and I still don't understand why that was available. Uh, Anyway, right now what I'm using is Rode's NT-USB microphone. It's super simple. I just hook it into my laptop and I open up GarageBand and that is what I'm doing. Uh, Like technology, it is amazing. Uh, And then when we do podcasts more formally, we use the Procasters. Uh, But check out Rode.com. They have all kinds of different microphones and audio equipment. Uh, Whether you're hooking it up to your iPhone or a video camera or plugging it into your laptop or recording live music, whatever it is, they can meet your needs. Uh, Also, Facebook, Instagram, R-O-D-E-M-I-C, Rode Mic, Facebook, Instagram. Check them out, support them because they've been very supportive of us. Uh, also real quick, fuck it. I work with Ring of Honor. I do marketing and branding. We have our, uh, big, biggest pay-per-view of the year, Friday, December 15th. Uh, it's sold out right away. The Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City, the middle of Manhattan. I will be there. I am fucking excited to do that. Um, even though it's sold out, you can watch it from home or wherever you are. Uh, if you have cable, pay-per-view, that's the way to do it. You can also order and watch through our website, rohwrestling.com. If you have a PlayStation, you can watch it there. Or the Fight TV app, F-I-T-E, Fight TV app. Uh, it's free to download, and then you can order uh, Ring of Honor pay-per-views through there or also watch our weekly TV for free, Fight TV app. Check it out. Think you'd like it. Uh, if you don't know anything about pro wrestling, uh, think of it this way. WWE, they're like Imagine Dragons, and Ring of Honor, we're the periphery, or animals as leaders. Uh, Ring of Honor, it's awesome. I'm there because I genuinely love it. Anyway, episode 35, we are going to begin that right now. Javier Reyes, Animals as Leaders, with Matt of Periphery. Enjoy. Hey everybody, Matt Halpern here, coming to you from, where are we today? Salt Lake City, Utah, in the back of the Periphery Tour Bus with episode 35 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. Um, I've been promising to get our guests today on for a few weeks now, and it's just been kind of crazy on this tour, and we finally got it lined up. So our guest today is, uh, is Javier Reyes Jr. from the band Animals as Leaders. And uh, I've known Javier since really before most people in my own band because I played in Animals as Leaders, which many of you may or may not know, uh, for a very brief period of time back in 2008, I think, like 2007, 2008. 2008, I think it was. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. 2008. And um, 
when Javier, Javier and I met, we became fast friends, I think, yeah. right away. Right away, right away. Yeah. You were, uh, so for those that don't know, the brief story of how I ended up playing with Animals as Leaders was I was playing uh, some pop rock gig with a couple friends of mine uh, in Baltimore, and Misha Mansour from my band and our old guitar player Alex Boyce, who was a, uh, a friend of mine who I went to college with as well, who was the guitar player periphery, came out to see me play. And when Misha saw me for the first time, he was like, damn, you know, this dude's a really good drummer he might fit really well for this project that I'm working on. And that project at the time that he was working on was the first Animals as Leaders record. Him and Tosin were recording this record in Misha's apartment, just the two of them at the time, and they were looking to, you know, to find a drummer. So Misha, uh, you know, kind of approached me and said, hey, I got this band, you know, this, this new project that I'm producing, and I think you'd be a great potential drummer for it. And when I first heard it, uh, I was like, nope, no way. I don't think I can play this shit. It's way too crazy. And it was such a departure from what I was used to doing. But the more and more I listened to it, the more I kind of fell in love with it. And, um, you know, the music was super, super challenging, but also really unique and, and really progressive from a drumming standpoint and from an overall melodic standpoint. So I just kind of started falling in love with it and listening to it more. And I tried to play through some of the songs and I was actually able to do it. So. Next thing you know, uh, Misha set up an audition for me to to go down to DC from Baltimore and uh, set up a small little drum set. I don't even know if I brought my drums or had a kit there, but basically set up a really small drum set in Javier's uh, basement at the time. And at that practice, uh, that was the first time I got a chance to jam with Javier, first chance I got to jam with Tosin and Misha. And, we, and then Chabon was there. Chabon was there too. Who, who was, uh, was at the time was the fourth member of the band. He was going to do the electronics and just didn't work out eventually for him. But yeah, but, but he's doing some, there. He's doing some other. cool stuff. Yeah, but he just not on the stage side. Yeah, of things exactly. And so uh, the the very long story short is you know when we got together you know, we kind of all became pretty fast friends. And um, we practiced quite a bit, I want to say, for a while, because I don't know if there we, were already shows booked. Well, there was, I think there was, there was like an Amur show that we were going to do or something like that. It was like Amur. Uh, it was a show in Baltimore that we got, you know, lined up for. At Fletcher's. Yeah, either at Fletcher's or 8 by 10 or something like okay. that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so we were, we were like pressing hard to to get it to get it done but yeah and at that point Tosin and I had been going through a few people I mean there was I don't know was Rudy after or before you I think Rudy auditioned before right I think he auditioned before and then you guys had Vinny Vinny was the first and Mm -hmm. then that didn't work out Rudy Rudy he was 17 at the time he he was tried so hard he like I guess it took him a month to to learn the whole the whole you know tempting time yeah and when we asked him to learn like five songs he was like oh it's gonna take like five or six more months and we we're like oh dude we can't make that yeah <laughs> we can't do that couldn't take that time yeah no yeah but, and I remember I just I've always been a fast learner with stuff and I came in and I knew that I wasn't playing the songs verbatim 
you know, like there were certain skill sets that I just hadn't worked on. Yeah, I mean, I think I was doing the same thing, bro. I mean, those parts were hard. I hadn't played metal actually in a long time. I had given up on metal for a good while too. You know, when I was 22 or something, I quit metal. Um, the first version of Animals as Leaders that Tosin let me hear was so not metal. You know, that that was the other thing too. When he first he, he first let me hear this material, he was like, yo, I'm doing this project. Do you want to be the other guitar player when I take it out live? I was like, let me hear it. He sends it to me and it's all jazzy. And it's all kind of more, more electronic, hardly any distortion anywhere. And it wasn't until he redid it with Misha mm. that it became like this gent thing you know product, which i think was probably better in the in the long run obviously um i think it gave it uh an identity yeah um because it was all over the place before but at that point i'm like having to pick up my metal chops again like i hadn't played metal in a minute yeah i mean neither. I, was, I was writing hip-hop and fucking tank playing tango which is so crazy because i mean you, yeah it's funny you and i were both in very different places musically so I was I was playing very kind of um, I don't want to say casually because um, we took it seriously, but I was playing in this like fun metal band at the time with some of my best friends called Mad Mardigan, um, who one of the guys is my current roommate. Um, so I was playing the band with him, and I was playing pop music, and I was doing session work, and um, I was in no mindset to be playing metal. But I had been exposed to Periphery and Bulb. So like I've been thinking about that style, and then when I heard the drums and the the newness of the sound for the first Animals as Leaders record, and that the gent approach to it, I was like, "Fuck, this is kind of awesome! Like yeah. this is a cool chance." And I don't know if you remember too, but at the time I was really trying to launch Band Happy. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I was and I was really, I mean, in all honesty, I was looking at this like, "Okay, this is a really cool opportunity because." If this band goes somewhere, it's gonna help me reach an audience of musicians that might be the right audience for the business that I was trying to launch, which is exactly what I communicated to Periphery when I joined their band as well. Um, so, anyway, that being said, when I met you, you looked completely different than you look now. So now you're like fit and like all in shape, and you got this like sick ass beard and we you and i both have mad gray hair uh, but you had like long hair this like big thick dark beard you were living in dc you were working on i mean you're working on hip-hop at yeah. the time um and i remember just even in the first bunch of times that we sat down together and just to hang out like we would just kind of like smoke and chill and you know wait for Tosin to show up and we'd have to go find him sitting in adams morgan with like a little you know cafe yeah, having a coffee, just, hey, come on, man, time to, time to practice. But but that was some of the most fun stuff. And then we played two, two shows. shows. We played at DC9 at Fletcher's. and Fletcher's. And I remember DC9 was kind of like, I mean, I had fun, but it was such a, I mean, it was like a small setup. We were like in the corner of this little room. And for those that, that are from DC or have been in that venue, you know it's like up the stairs and really small and not corner, ideal. Corner stage, yeah. low ceiling. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a fun experience, but it was a shot venue. And I think there's actually footage from that night somewhere. I don't know where, but I've seen it before. Then we played Fletcher's, and that was a sick show. The Fletcher's was a sick show, I remember that. I remember that being, like, being awesome, because all of Periphery was there. And they were, so this, this venue, Fletcher's in Baltimore, is not there anymore. But 
if you're on the stage and you're looking out from stage left, there was this little area against the wall where there was a bench. And on this bench, literally, it was Tom Murphy, Travis Orban, Jake Bowen, Misha Mansoor, and at the time, Chris Barreto and right. Alex Boyce. And they're just all standing there, like, watching the show. And I'm like, damn, like, Periphery's watching us. You know, like, I got to nail these parts. And we had a full audience. Like, it was like a packed show. I don't remember who we were playing with, though. I think it was just like a normal local show. Was it like a noise in the basement thing, maybe? Something like that? Actually, it might have been like a Monday night sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was awesome. Yeah, it was sick. It was really fun. And then next thing you know, like we were kind of poised to like, we wanted to do more. We wanted to get out and tour on that record. And then next thing we know, kind of just life hit each of us in a different way. I know Tosin at the time was exploring, moving out of, out of the area right. and doing some things down in, in the South. And you, if I recall, got really heavily involved into producing hip hop and rap. Yeah, I got a, a, a studio job um, producing hip hop. So at that point I was like, okay, well, this is a little bit more secure, you know? Yeah. Let me take that option. Because um, we just had these two shows and time was like instrumental metal what the fuck yeah you know, what does one do with that and we i think too we were trying to figure out whether or not like there would be a record deal because there was some confusion if i recall with like the previous record label and what tosin's like obligations were to that so everything was just kind of in flux and i don't remember ever any like negativity between any of us it was just more like we don't we don't know how to do this right now and we all have other opportunities and we're just going to do that so you know you were doing the production thing and Tosin was going down down to Kentucky and I was working on launching this band happy thing and in that time I get a call from Misha who's like hey our drummer just left periphery we've jammed you and I have jammed a couple songs in your basement Javier <laughs> and he's like you're the only one I know who can maybe learn a few songs right away can you learn six or seven songs and come fill in for these shows for us and then that was the start of me joining Periphery and I remember feeling so bad because I had joined Periphery but then you guys got uh, an offer to play New England Metal Fest and for whatever reason there was a there was like a conflict of interest or there was a conflict somehow where you would Tosin reached out to me and say, hey, I know you're doing Periphery, but we, we got this opportunity to play New England Metal Fest. It's going to be sick. It's going to be a thousand plus people, whatever it is. Can you please play it? And I couldn't do it. And I remember <clears> feeling <throat> shitty. And I don't remember. Did you guys end up playing it or no? No, no. At that point, at, at that point, I think he was doing, he started touring with Boo. Oh, right, Cyrus. right. I think people were hitting him up about Animals with Leaders. So I think people just started giving him show offers. Because the music was out. The music was out. Um, yeah, 2008, like, you know, as soon as Misha and, and Tosin finished writing it, they just put it up on MySpace. And it was out for the whole world. You know? It was a hit. Yeah, it was kind of like, it was pretty sick, you know, everybody just knew it. Um, but by that point, you know, I think it's either too late, late 2008 or early 2009 is when that New England Metal Fest would have happened. And Tosin's just getting offers, and then we start getting that BT BAM offer. And that wasn't, and it wasn't until then that we were like, okay, well, fuck, okay, this is a real tour. It's not just one show, you know. We have 
let's get it done. Mm-hmm. At that point, we were scrambling. <clears throat> to find a, a drummer, right? Scrambling to find a drummer. I think we tried Rudy again. He's just He was just too... Little green, you know. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was what? 17, 17 or 18 years old. Yeah, he killed it. I mean, he, I think at the time he had a cover <clears throat> of Tempting Time. And yep, and he was killing it. He, it's funny, he had the long hair at that point. Yeah. We're talking about Alex Rudinger for those that don't know him by Rudy, um, who we need to have on the podcast at some point too. Um, but and I well, I remember <clears throat> even at that time, Tosin was sending me all sorts of people that were auditioning for you. He was sending me videos. And he was like, "Can you help vet these guys and tell me who you?" Yeah who you think might be good and I think even then like Troy Wright was sending in videos or that might have been a little bit later no, after Troy Wright was a little later was that um, after Naveen yeah so how did the Naveen thing unfold dude I didn't we we, we, didn't, we didn't know what we were gonna do we didn't we didn't have a drummer <clears throat> I think I think we even reached out to Vinny again and it was just like wait no that's a mistake don't hit up Vinny mm-hmm. um, yeah we were kind of about to play to backing drum tracks and it was just going to be the two of us playing guitar um, and then literally a week before the first show Naveen calls Tosin and is like yo you still don't have a drummer I'm gonna I'm mailing my kit I'm shipping my kit to to house house right now I'm gonna be your drummer I didn't even I have no fucking clue I'm Tosin just comes up and says hey uh, so this dude Naveen who I played in this band in Anosity is going to come and do the drums. I was like, cool, we got a drummer. So, I had no, I didn't know who he was. Right. I met him when I went to pick him up at the airport five days before the first show. Picked him up at the airport, immediately went to the re- recording studio where I worked at to rehearse there. You know, every, every night until we had to leave for tour. Right. And that was kind of the start of, you know, the little Naveen era. I mean, it was just like, What's up? Let's go. Yeah. You know? And literally, it literally was that for that first week because we, you know, tried to rehearse as much as we could before we had to leave. Made it to the first show right at Showtime. Um, both BT Bam and Veil of Maya um, were like waiting for us and helping us pull our all our gear onto the stage as soon as we got there. It was kind of insane. Um, but the crazy thing about it that being our first you know big show people already knew the music right which was pretty awesome right you know yeah it's pretty gnarly Um, yeah and it's it's funny how there was no there there were no barriers to entry for people to find the music and I don't see many bands doing that the same way now like Misha put out music for years like that, and that's how people got to know Periphery eventually was because of that bulb shit. I don't even know if you ever even listened to that stuff back in the day. Well, yeah, dude, that's the re- the whole reason why the Misha and Animals thing happened. Well, Tosin thing happened because I auditioned for Periphery. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, that's how. That's how. When I went to go meet Misha, well, I heard I heard the the stuff online, and I was like, this is this is really good. Like, how the fuck is this kid doing this? in his fucking basement. I hadn't heard production like that that wasn't from like a major studio. So it was like I was, sugar. Yeah, I was intrigued yeah. and I was just like, who the hell is this kid? Yeah. You know, I didn't want to do metal, but I was just intrigued at how good it was. Right. You know, how interesting it was. It was like Meshuggah influenced, but newer, you know, um, and the production was just phenomenal. That 
for what I was hearing, and I knew that this was a home recording, you know? Yeah. Um, so when I first went to, to meet Misha, Tosin happened to be visiting from Atlanta, and I was like, yo, come with me to this dude's house, show the periphery, and, you know. They just became friends. So going back now, because I don't really know this story, how did you and Tosin meet initially? And were you also in, in Reflux? No. Okay, so what's the what's that story as far as you and Tosin? So Tosin and I were in a band called PSI mm-hmm. back in Silver Spring, DC area. Um, Reflux was another band that was also in the scene. Um, Ash Avelton, now owner of Sumerian Records, was the lead singer of that band. Right. Um, when PSI broke up, Tosin went to Reflux. I quit music and went to New York and living the New York life for a couple of years and Tosin was into the reflex. Um, we just stayed in touch though. You know, at that point we were just friends. Right. And when I came, I moved back to DC. He was living in Atlanta. Um, and it was like around maybe 2006 at this point, 2006, 2007. And he already had the idea of Animals as Leaders kind of in the works. Um, he comes to visit and he's, you know, we're chilling at my house and I'm playing guitar and he sees me doing all sorts of crazy shit. He was like, all right, well, I guess this could be a guy to play the animal shit. So back then he was just like, yo, if I do this thing, would you want to play? I'm like, yeah, sure. But, you know, at that point I had given up on academia and trying to figure out a normal career. And I was like, all right, I'm actually going to do music. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was like, all right, well, let me know whenever you're ready. Like, I'll be here chilling. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So when did he actually circle back for this project? Well, I guess when when we started meeting up and everything. Okay. Know? And then, you know, there was all these gaps in between. And then it wasn't until the first BT BAM tour, maybe like a month or two before that, is that it was like, all right. This is going to be real. Yeah. Like, and you had to basically... The funny thing, yeah... So we he got the offer. He was hanging. We were hanging out of my house, and you know we couldn't we couldn't find a drummer. So we were just like, is it should we do it? Should we not do it? What the fuck? And at the time he was thinking, it's like he was thinking about moving to New York and going to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just being like, yo, let's just do this for a year, and everything will be different. And literally like. You know, the first tour led to like another two tours and shit just kept piling up. Yeah. And shit has been different ever since. I remember that. Well, and one of, was it the second tour that you guys did was with us and um, Human Abstract? No. And Vale? It was Circle of Contempt. Oh, that's right. You guys. And Vale. Vale. Right, right, right. Yeah. And that was what, 2009 or 10? 2010. 2010. Which was, that was so cool for... 2010, either that or 2011, like early 2011. No, it had to be 10. It had to be 10 because Alex was, Alex Boys was Early, early 2010. Yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That was our first um, bandwagon tour, I think, maybe. Fuck no. We were all in bands. Were we all in bands? Hell yeah. Damn. My timeline is all off. We were all in bands. You, you don't remember like the, all the blizzards that we had to drive through? Yeah, I guess so. We got stuck in... in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or whatever, because there were there was a blizzard. We couldn't drive. Oh, that's right. And you know what? I remember 
so we had Brandon Bateman yeah. on the show recently and I was telling the story how like when we were leaving his place I got stuck on the ice hill <laughs> I don't know if I ever told actually I don't know if I ever told this story we were leaving his place and I was driving the van and I was like oh I can get up this hill I can get up this hill it's fine and as we start going up the hill in the van and trailer we realize it's completely just covered with like two inches of ice and the hill was like a serious grade and I had to stop and put on the brake and luckily we didn't start sliding but it probably took three hours for us to go inside the house of whoever random nice neighbor was right there. We were filling up buckets of hot water and dumping the hot water under our tires to melt the ice so that we could slowly reverse down the hill somehow. Or I don't even know if we reversed it. We like somehow turned it around and, and we got it down the hill, but I fucked up big time with that. But anyway, as an aside, um, so it's interesting how it was just kind of like a let's see what happens let's do this and then it's turned into what it's turned into so i didn't even know that you were in new york or even looking to do other work outside of music what what was so where were you were you living in new york city yeah i moved to new york city just went to some community college over there you know um at that point i i've been doing music pretty much all my life and haven't known anything else and I remember doing a bunch of like weekend warrior tours and there was just one show in Pawtucket when I remember going home and being like, I hate the people that are around, you know, around me. And I was just like, I, I gotta do something different. So I just made a huge change in my life at the time. You know, I was like 21. Um, yeah, at the time I was 21. It's like, all right, if I don't change now, you know, it's going to be too late sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I quit music. I was like, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to study sciences or some shit. Um, and I did that. Yeah, What? so what are some of your other interests outside of music? Because I don't even know. I mean, I know business is obviously something. And I know you were riding for a long time, bikes. Yeah. You know, but, but as far as like school or even if you, if right now, if you couldn't do this anymore, where would you go? What would you do? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think for the longest time I was trying to think of other, you know, what else could I do? Um, but after a while, you know, music just becomes kind of everything. Everything that's been good about my life has been due to music. Anything interesting, anything like unique and everything all about that's been about music. So at this point, you know, I kind of have committed myself to, to doing music one form or other. Um, yeah, it's like whenever I've tried to not do music, I just get sucked back into it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I forget, it, it's easy to forget that you have something unique, you know, it's like you almost need other people to highlight it to you sometimes, but well, because you you're not always it. around it, you know, you're, you're kind of on your own a lot of times. Which is, an, it, it's funny, I, I feel like we've, we've talked about this in certain ways on the podcast before, but, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to identify, like, or be all self-sucky about your own talents right. and, like, the things that you're naturally drawn to. Because I think to a lot of people that we know on this, you know, on this tour even, it's like, it's just what they do. 
you know what I mean? Like music is just a part of us, but it's just, it's not something that we walk around thinking about like, oh, we're drummers and we're guitar players and we're this and we're that. It's like, we're all, I mean, the day-to-day workings of who we are as people, we're just people with personalities and interests and love, you know, we love for other things and and whatever. But it's funny. It's like you said, it's like you kind of need other people to remind you sometimes like, fuck, like this matters. Or, or, or you do it differently or like you know you have something that you bring to the table because it's very easy to have self-doubt right. or be your own worst critic I guess is the point exactly. you know because it's, it's it's just it's tough when especially in this genre when you're around so many fucking amazing musicians you know I watch your drummer play every night and I'm just like Phew. <laughs> like alright uh, I'm just gonna stay in my lane and do what I do and that's that because that kid is on a whole nother level and we've talked about him before on the podcast too in, in that regard so anyway so before we get into more band stuff i'm just curious and i think and we've had some questions about it like where does your musical talent come from and because you're not only just a, a fantastic guitar player and songwriter but you produce music and you've produced different styles of music i mean producing hip-hop means you have an understanding of rhythm and beats and keyboards and other software and other sounds so like where did that start and how did you even get into that stuff um well with music i started pretty young at the age of five my dad just put me at you know piano lessons at the age of six i started playing guitar um with guitar probably wasn't until maybe eight or so eight or nine that i was actually like okay i'm gonna you know take my lessons serious my my dad was very like like yo you have to go i didn't i didn't really like it at first you know i was it was hard i'm just like big guitar you know little hands was it classical guitar yeah with the where i I started was they just kind of just started you off with classical guitars it was like a flamenco store okay um so the owner of the store was a flamenco player all the other teachers there weren't flamenco teachers but they just kind of had nylon guitars all over the place. So you just, you learned on that. But anyways, yeah, it wasn't until, I don't know, nine or so that I can start, you know, seeing my own progress and being like, oh, I'm a little bit better than the other students, so that's cool. Or that see the enthusiasm of my teachers being like, wanting to teach me longer, um, telling me to come in extra, you know, earlier than, than I'm supposed to just to, practice sort of thing and it was cool it was like all right cool it's like I have something that's kind of cool and unique and then yeah I just remember being pretty young and being able to play pretty hard stuff my brother who was six years older than me also started playing guitar at the same time that I did and the level of progress or the rate of progress that I was going at versus his rate was pretty crazy you know to the point where he was just like you're just my little brother is just way better than you know at me at guitar yeah i'm not even gonna try and it was and that was probably something really cool for you to feel yeah absolutely you know as a kid you're just like all right cool i'm this i'm better than my older brother doing this hell yeah like right i'm gonna be awesome extra sick at it um i remember one of my brother's friends um buddy buddy named bill lord he was always he liked playing guitar too. He was he came from kind of a musical musical family. His brother played drums, 
and he was into Rush and Yes and Kansas and Van Halen and shit like that. And early on, I remember he would he would be like, "Yo, check out this band, check out this band, check out this band, check out this band." Like fucking, I don't know, being ten or eleven years old, you know, checking out Dream Theater, fucking King Diamond. That's where I was. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. King Diamond and Merciful Fate were for a good couple years like my favorite you know albums yeah. to listen to yeah like my dad got me into it i would have to agree probably like a good year to three years yeah it was like a good that's so funny i didn't know that about you yeah man yeah. i had my i had my pretty you know extreme metal i, I was all about like overkill yeah. creator and shit like that yeah but i got into racer x too which is funny because it's like a totally a guitar band but I got into Racer X and then their Racer X drummer, Scott Travis, ended up being the Judas Priest drummer. And like that opened me up to a whole nother world of rock music and you know, that whole metal kind of scene. At the store that I that I would take lessons at, the other teachers that they had were also fucking amazing, like mm -hmm. other than the owner. Uh, there was this one guy named Stuart Payne who had an amazing curriculum, like for you know for beginner to intermediate to second intermediate to advanced to really advanced and it was all based off of songs that you know we would know i remember the first he had, it was like a huge binder filled with beatles music and that was my essentially intro to like kind of rockish guitar um from that went to the second era of the beatles you know like the the hippie years and then after that we started incorporating led zeppelin black sabbath and shit like that after that, we brought in the Racer X, the Iron Maiden, the Dokken, crazy shit like that. So he was kind of a, a cool, you know, path to check out all these crazy shredders. Mm -hmm. And it was it was pretty awesome. Like having like I was pretty amazing teacher. And around that time, were you sort of balancing playing still this classical flamenco style and grabbing the electric guitar and learning that kind of style too. I think I got my first electric at like 11 or 12, I want to say, or maybe like, actually I think I was like in the sixth grade, 12, that I got it. Um, so I hadn't played any real electric until then. Um, any any electric stuff, we were just playing it on, a, on an nylon with a pick or your fingers right um yeah it wasn't probably by 12 i got the electric but they weren't really they weren't really focused on me trying to play metal like all the lessons were very like you know riff based or this is how we bend properly this is how we slide properly this is you know what a hammer on actually feels like or you know oh a variety of things technique though technique technique yeah absolutely yeah. Um, I mean, we would learn songs, but it wasn't, it was never really metal, metal. Like, mm -hmm. I, I would go home, and at that point, I was already, like, listening to, you know, uh, you know, Iron Maiden or fucking Motley Crue, Sepultura, I think, even. Mm -hmm. Like, early, like, 90, 90, 90. 91. The Pantera era started. Yeah, the, Pantera, Cowboys from Hell was out, and I was yeah. just like, "There's nothing better than this. This is yeah, 
this is cool. Like, I mean, listening to Judas Priest and stuff was cool, but... No, that took Pantera, it to a different level, yeah. yeah like, yeah, um, Pantera was... To me, they were the first real, like, gent band. No, I would say... Fear Factory is the first gent band. You think so? Yeah. I think Pantera is, like... They were that first of, like, that just don't care fucking I don't know they they had their own fucking thing they did have their own thing I, I guess I just mean in terms of like how percussive Dime's guitar playing was and how Vinny would always play okay. the right grooves it wasn't it, Vinny was always about groove and Dime's playing always had those you know like those 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 chugs that you didn't really hear I, I could elsewhere. see I could see where you're saying I could see what you're saying you know, but I, but I'm not, and I'm not saying you're wrong at all about Fear Factory because that the way that their shit was in sync or syncopated, yeah, you know, was absolutely. If you go back, was yeah, the, they're it's kind of the, the one of the godfathers of it. Absolutely, Indir absolutely, indirectly. Yeah, but I think about like I don't know um, a new level. And when the groove kicks in, I mean, that's it's so in sync guitar, drums, bass, everything was just so tight. Anyway, we don't need to, well, we can talk about that all fucking day. Do a whole Pantera podcast. Yeah, we got to get a whole bunch of other people from, from this tour on that too. Um, but okay, so that, I mean, that's cool. And then I guess going, going, just going back a little bit further back to when you first started to even play music um you know like where your obviously your dad put you down and said hey play piano and then hey play guitar but were they super supportive of you going down this career path uh yes and no so my dad is is a singer um, but he, he wasn't a very successful singer. He just kind of stayed in the local scene, but he spent a lot of money, um, you know, making music videos, albums, and, you know, ads here and there. So to my mom, she was just like, yo, you're just wasting your money. So to, you know, looking at me being like, Hey mom, I'm going to do this metal thing. She's like, fuck, like don't don't do it <laughs> you know just yeah. so she was she wasn't like you know she was supportive and being like yo I'm I love you yes go do it but there was definitely there was no you know passionate encouragement from her part and my dad's side he's kind of like he's he's a little weird he's he's like you should be a singer you know I'm like well I don't really sing he's like well I'm, we're gonna do this we're gonna do this instrumental metal band thing and he's like well but you know are you, are you guys gonna like perform for singers what's the deal how singers hire you we're like no no we're we're the we're the act we're the yeah thing. it's, it's like, well, instrumental music yeah it's like well why don't you sing i was like well pop pop i'm not a singer I was like no but you could do it <laughs> you know he's he still asks every every album it's like yo you put vocals you, you do some vocals dude I'm like wow no it's working no but it's, but well yeah I mean they just they didn't get now when when if you know when it was first starting they were very questionable you know um, right I mean I had quit music moved to New York moved back to DC went to college was working at the restaurant quit the restaurant 
and going back to music, you know, it seemed like I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And, you know. They're so, like, are you sure you want to do this instrumental band? Well, yeah, we're like, okay, now you're older. Are you sure you want to go back to music also, you know? Right. My dad was kind of gung-ho because he's it was music, but he was, his thing was like, you should sing. Yeah. Just go, sing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we started doing the band thing, and then, you know, the, I think the success of the band happened fairly quick, um, and they started seeing that. It was like, okay, there, there's some... It, it isn't just a normal band, metal band. Mm-hmm. It's not definitely wasn't metal bands when I was like you know nineteen, right? Um, and yeah, they've they've been to a few shows and they can see you know the point of what, what we're trying to do now. So yeah. now they're way more supportive. They're like you know super cool. Yeah, we have a bunch. I have a bunch of nieces and nephews, and I'm there. You know, they're cool. Guitar player, rock star, uncle sort of vibes, and it's, yeah. Yeah. They 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 fucking love it and it's cool. That's awesome. Um, so now now it's a whole different you know thing. But at the beginning it was a little, you know, took a lot of convincing, if you will. Yeah, I can imagine so. And so, your parents are first generation. No. Okay. Uh, so I'm first generation. There. I mean, Amer- like he being here. Yeah. They well, so they yeah, what's, moved. Okay. They moved from El Salvador. Um, yeah. They met in the U.S. Oh, okay. Um, they met in the U.S., oh. but they they moved from El Salvador um, as immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually. When was that? How old were they? I think my dad. I think they were both like 20, eight, 19, 20. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're both the same age. So I think, but I think literally they came right around the same time. Um, it wasn't until eight years after they both came that they met. Did they both? settle in dc initially yeah um i don't know why salvadorians decided to move to dc but at the time um the uh, dc just had the largest population of salvadorians outside of interesting el salvador it's, i mean is it still most, that way in the states uh sort of that noise is the uh bus door and opening up for anybody listening. I'm very sorry about that. That's Jake. I, Say hi, Jake. Hi. How are you? Are you having a good talk? We're having. Good. Yeah, we're having a great talk. All right. Sweet. You boys have a good time. Actually, I'm just gonna. Since I've interrupted the whole thing, I'm gonna go for that too. It's no problem. This is real life. Love you guys. Yeah, Love buddy. You. And the uh, spaceship door is closed now again. Um, but is is it still the biggest population in the states? You um, say? I've. I don't know if it, it's either DC or LA, um, okay. but I think I mean DC has a lot of Salvadorians. Yeah. Um, I mean, growing up, more most Hispanic kids in my school were Salvadorian, uh, and it was kind of just the vibe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's a little more mixed now than it was before, you know, back then. But so yeah, they moved to DC for I don't know what reasons, and you know, when they met, they had me. I got to be born in DC. It's yeah. sick. I like it. Which is great, yeah. Yeah. But you, so, in, you, you have an older brother, and, hey Mish, you can say hi. I see my backpack. This is a, this is a very live podcast. Okay. okay. Sorry to interrupt. Bye. Bye. Bye, Misha. All the, uh, all the faces are showing up. Um, but you're, are you the youngest out of all I'm your brothers? Second sisters? to youngest. Okay. I have a younger sister. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I have older siblings, 
uh, one sister is from my dad, another brother and another sister from my mom, and then me and my younger sister are from... Both. Parents. Uh, your parents. Right. Okay. And then when did they... Because you mentioned the restaurant. Correct. People don't know that it's your family restaurant. So how did that start and how old were you? Were, like, was I already going on when you were born or... Uh, no, I think, I think they opened the restaurant in 82. I was two. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't really remember a whole lot. I just remember eating all the foods and being raised in the restaurant. It's crazy, like, taking on the, the, the huge, like, mountain of challenge of opening a restaurant in some place like D.C. and having a two-year-old and other kids. But I guess at the time, your older siblings were able to sort of help with certain things. And I mean, were your parents around or were you literally, like, raised in the restaurant? Uh, I mean, my parents were around. We were definitely raised in the restaurant, and we definitely had like nanny vibes, you know. Um, but yeah, um, there was a, a lot of just hanging out at the restaurant, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was just what we did. Yeah. It was either that or, I mean, we just couldn't be at home alone, so they just had to have the kids at the restaurant. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. What's the restaurant called again? Uh, the restaurant's called El Tamarindo. It's in Adams Morgan. And when they opened it at the time, actually, the the neighborhood was hood. Really? As fuck. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. I remember there was, there was people telling my dad that he was crazy for trying to open up a business there. But he had this lawyer friend that was just kind of in the, in the know with the neighborhood, you know, politics and whatnot. And he was like, look, there are going to be a lot of changes to the neighborhood. Just stick it out. And for a good good while the the restaurant just kind of blew up like it was the spot that Adams Morgan in DC where the restaurant is um, kind of became a cool hip you know main nightlife section of the, of the city uh, now there's tons of other areas but at the time it was like you know crazy we would have crazy lines inside of the restaurant and it was a huge success um, it's awesome yeah it was pretty it was pretty awesome I've been there. I mean, when we were auditioning, or not auditioning, when we were practicing, I mean, I think that's the only time I went, but we went for a whole, you know, family dinner kind of thing. It was great. I just took that for, right before Thanksgiving, I took the our crew to nice. dinner there, so it was cool. Yeah, I'm sure that's always, that's, that's cool, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Okay. So, do you think that some of your business acumen, or at least the ability to sort of manage internally what's going on came from being in a restaurant at all or like being uh, around a business like absolutely that? absolutely i mean <clears throat> being raised in the restaurant you know like any you know i don't know if you've been around kids but they always know better than the parent you know they're always trying to figure it out i, I remember trying to figure things out better around the restaurant early on you know it's just like oh they're doing this There's, it'd be more efficient if we can do this this and that just because I'm a kid at a restaurant trying to not be bored, you know? Um, mm -hmm. At the time, there was no fucking iPads. There was no... You just looked around and saw what to do, you know? Right, how can I make something more efficient here? Um, yeah. And then, you know, seeing... We would always see our parents kind of just manage employees and see, you know, the difference on how you can talk to how to deal with multiple personalities you know because i think as a in a managerial position or as a 
business owner, you essentially are trying to figure out how to deal with people. Right. You know, and do it in a way where it's beneficial for you and for them. And, you know. I think that's, it's something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast is the service industry in particular is so great for preparing people to deal with personalities. I mean, you and, get them all. And you get them all unexpectedly. You never know what you're going to get. And you, you get know? them all on both sides. I mean, from the, from at the restaurant, you would deal with employees who are, are fucking crazy also. As, right. cr- as crazy as the customers that come in there. Right. You know? Um, so, yeah, having to deal with both of them is... is I mean, I think it helped, obviously, um, with dealing with some stuff on with the music side. Um, well, yeah, and so... With the business <coughs> side of, of touring and of dealing with staff and crew. I mean, you you have crew, we have crew, and it takes, it's pretty, we're eight, nine years into our career, you know, this band career, and it's, it's been a while that you've had the same type of guys because you know that that type of person is hard to come by. Right. Or you playing just don't like a whole bunch of other people just because right. you don't like them. Right. You know, um, yeah. and that's kind of a, a thing to deal with on, on tour. I think that sort of thing it might you know it might have helped out here and there. Oh, or no, I think so. I don't know. It, 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 I think it's shaped my personality because I also do that with everyone. You know. Yeah. Well, you're personable in general, <clears throat> and I think you're able to to strike up conversations with people because you've had to from a very young age. Yeah. People asking you, oh. Is this your family's place? Oh, what do you do here? You know, I'm sure you got that when you were a little kid, even. You know, so you're dealing with all sorts of people. And so, <clears throat> is it correct that Animals as Leaders is still, like, self-managed at this point? Uh, technically, yes. Um, it's managed by the three of us, you know. Um, we, all, we all think differently. We all have our fortes. We all have our weaknesses. And I think... We, we all know what we want best for ourselves, um, whether it's, you know, missing out on, you know, this better slot on this festival or whatever, but I think ultimately we, we feel like we're intelligent enough and adult enough to kind of, you know, be, be responsible for ourselves. Um, I don't think the industry is, it is what it used to be. Right. Um, We've had management, and you know, any time that they were like, "This, this is a standard," and we're like, "Well, that standard doesn't feel okay for us." Um, so yeah, we haven't had management for most of our career. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I bring that subject up because I see so many questions come through in all sorts of different um, arenas about, "Hey, I'm in a band. When do I need a manager?" Or, hey, I'm an artist, like, do I need a manager? When, when should we shop for that? And my response is always like, well, you only need a manager when you need a manager. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in your opinion, when do you need a manager? And for you guys, will it ever be something that you do again, do you think? Um, yeah. I mean, I think we always constantly talk about having management. I think there are good management will do a lot of for the band. Um, the experience that we've had hasn't been that beneficial. Um, I think 
I think it's going to be unique for every band. Um, there's a lot of energy that happens to be with Animals as Leaders. There's a lot of things that come our ways with just by the organic, you know, energy of the band or the organic success of the band um, that we didn't f when when we had management we didn't feel like it was you know anything new was being brought to the table like we were just doing the work and then kind of just paying a percentage of the work that we were doing to somebody else just to have them represent us right um i don't think that's the case for everybody you know i think some bands succeed doing that some bands don't i think some bands need management um for a variety of reasons you know um we're a very instrument centric band um i think most management tends to deal with bands that have vocals and you know use um their connections tend to be more connected with more mainstream mainstream type of stuff where right. for us didn't really quite work out you know we, we know we're not going to be mainstream we have a cool edge you know that seems to be mainstream but in our genre you know i don't think we're never going to be on that avenge sevenfold level sort of thing um as far as like pop image you know well you're not going to purposely write radio hits correct you're not going to sort or, or i'm sorry like seek out the opportunities to be in the top 40 correct. list of songs correct, you know correct. you're going to write the music that you write and it's likely not going to fall into that category but i think from from uh outsider's perspective especially now being removed for, for so long from your band it's very similar to what i see with with us you guys are very strong-minded individuals you're very smart you're very good at your instruments you know your direction you know your lane you know what you want to do like you just described and i mean you're also not afraid to say no to a manager and what i what i see a lot of bands doing is hiring a manager and and basically saying here here are the keys to the kingdom you run our business and you're the boss and that is not the kind of relationship you should have with anyone that a band hires to work for them. And that's yeah. the difference that I think a lot of younger bands and younger artists don't necessarily, it's a point they don't grasp. When you hire a manager, you're hiring a manager to work for you, not, not asking a manager to hire you. Yeah, I think that's where... In in the in the industry, I think that's where the you know it becomes of a weird dynamic. I mean, like you're saying, you hire management and they're technically working for you, but more often than not, it feels the other way. Um, Jeopardy. Sorry, am I interrupting? I just need to grab some. Yeah. Hey, Jeff's here. Everybody, say hi to Jeff Holcomb. Hey, what's up, guys? Nice to uh, talk to you again. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll see you guys later. Okay. It's kind of funny. We've had, like, the people who have come back here, Jake, Misha, and Jeff, have all been on the podcast. That's funny. So we get some nice cameos in this episode. <laughs> it's great. Um, so, you know, with with management also, we would finish tours, and we are like, okay, we have to pay this to management. No one is going home without a amount of money. Uh, that's not cool. So we were just like... 
nah, we're not going to do that. Did you, so, um, and hopefully this doesn't come off as a good or bad example. I'm just curious, like, and you don't have to share if this is too personal, but, um, when you guys did have management, were there, were there tours where you came home with a nice chunk and you literally looked at what that chunk would look like after paying out a manager who you felt didn't do enough work to earn that? At that point, would you guys say, no, we're not paying you this amount? You know, absolutely. Um, I'm, we had, we had management, and it was it was the last tour that we did with BT Bam. We got the budget back, and there were you know it was full commission. They were going to go home with several several you know tens of thousands of dollars, and I remember calling them and being like, "Yo, guys, you guys did absolutely nothing for us to get this tour." You got the tour because like of the, your close friendship with BCM. This BC is our band. fifth tour with right. the band. Right. That, at the time, it was you know it was the fifth tour with the band. It's like there's absolutely no reason why the management should take full commission. Um, you know, so we made an arrangement. It was just like, okay, well, you're just going to get a, a fourth member cut, which for management, considering you know as a three piece band, it that fourth member cut it seems a little bit better than a 15% commission as management it's not that bad it's better than being in a six member band and taking a seventh member cut you know what I mean like they would yeah. they would never do that sort of thing they would so I think they were able to finagle it for their you know because they still went home with a decent amount of money and it was like you know looking back now it's like but why though right and well but <laughs> Was that sort of the end of that relationship in the sense that it, it both yeah. parties probably looked at it and said, you know what, like, you guys don't need us and we don't need, we don't need you. Yeah. And, you know. I think it was just like a bad pairing, you know, because mm -hmm. there's definitely times where I think we could use management. There's definitely, you know, we're musicians at the end of the day and, um, you know, we like procrastinating and sometimes not to our benefit. Uh, where I think sometimes management could help, but again, the band just has this, you know, a lot of organic opportunities that are just come to the band because of the nature of it, that is not the norm for, I think, a lot of metal bands, and I think the, the management that we tend to encounter is, one, not used to that either, and doesn't really know what to do with us, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, well, it's such a unique project, you know, but I think what's been very cool to witness myself about animals as leaders, even from very early on, were it, it, it's the opportunities that came to you guys because of the uniqueness of the style and the music and the sound. I remember when you guys first got the Thrice Tour offer, and that was just strictly like, hey, we like you guys. Like, I remember Thrice just simply being fans of you and saying, let's go on tour. And that's happened with like you did the you toured with the Deftones, yeah. in that same kind of way. Like you know, yeah. I mean, I think Meshuggah, all the all these bands that are taking us out, I think was just a level of like we think it's cool. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. which is awesome. It's great, it, and it's such a it's it's what it should be in so many ways, and I think it's it's a good lesson for a lot of these younger bands to to try to wrap their head around because all you guys were doing 
was being authentic to your sound and your music and then doing a good job of performing it live. And if a younger band sticks to that sort of formula, formula rule that is unique to them, that can happen too. And I see so many younger artists and bands that are just trying to be like other people instead of just fucking this is who we are and fuck it. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's natural for that to happen. I think we've seen it in all the... We've done it. We, yeah, we've done it. Yeah. I mean, the band that I was in when I was, you know, with Tosin, we sounded like Sepultura meets Slipknot meets Pantera, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think at the time we were still just trying to be unique, you know, mm -hmm. and trying to create something unique, not necessarily trying to create... Not trying to copy. We we're trying to. We're, we're, at the time, it was almost like we're figuring out how to refine our skills of how to borrow and make it your own. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, right. Because ultimately, you're still going to be copying from people, but it's how you combine it to make it your own thing is what's your craft at the end of the day, you know? Um, that's why Tozen sounds the way he does. That's the way why I sound the way I do, Misha and Mark and so on, you know? Um, it's how you borrow and put it into your own application, but still trying to be unique and still trying to write for yourself. Yeah. I think is kind of the, the main thing. Um, I think there, there might be just thousands of people who just don't get that. I don't know why, you know? Um, I think for so many like subgenres of metal that, that have come out, I think there's always, you know, maybe a total of like one to five bands tops in each subgenre that kind of define that. Five hundred other bands come and sound like them, none of them survive. Only these five continue. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of the same thing that just happens from era to era. Yeah. I mean, oh, I agree with you. I, you. You definitely see it. It's it's so interesting when you see a new band break through in some of you know whatever genre it is. And I think we've sort of seen that happen slowly in yeah, in in this world. New peripheries and new animals. Yeah, like baby animals and baby peripheries all over the place. Yeah, it's and it's it's cool, especially when it is authentic and done the the appropriate way. Um, so, not so much when it's just no, not so much when it's the same <laughs> thing, same thing. So there's a, there's a couple of things I, I want to sort of jump back and forth from. Um, so one is the the other style of music that you were producing for a while for work. How did you get into producing hip hop and and that kind of I got into hip hop. So when I had I was in college, I moved back to DC. I was going to GW mm -hmm. and working full time at the restaurant. Um I was bored with life. I was just like I'm going to start taking guitar lessons again. Um at that point, I started, I like remembered that I was like, oh shit, I'm pretty good. Um, and then I was just like, all right, well, I kind of miss playing on stage. And my brother was playing bass in a hip hop band with a bunch of dudes from my high school, ironically. Um, <clears throat> and I, they were like, decent. I was like, this is chill. I was just like, maybe I'll just join them. Play some simple licks that I don't have to really practice or really rehearse and just kind of go have a good time. But the band started just getting really better and better. Like the rehearsals were really good. We just started doing shows and it was like, 
the shows were, you know, 300, 500 people. And I was like, well, this is fun. And I kind of just started falling in love with, you know, music and playing live again. Um, at the rehearsals, when I first joined the band, um, my buddy Authentic, who was kind of the, the MC, the rapper of the band, he was the one making all these beats at home and he'd be just bring it to the band and be like, yo, I made this beat, let's do it the band version. You know, so I was hearing that and I'm like, oh, it'd be way sick if you could do this. And you, you know, my creative head just started wanting to do my own beats. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, I just went out and bought like an, an inbox and started making beats and started like wanting to bring ideas to the band. Being like, yo, I made this hip hop beat, let's make it a, it's like you can start singing here, you can start singing, rapping on this part, you know, so you essentially arranging. got into producing and arranging and music, like basically music directing for this band. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like music director because it still was like a band. Like mm -hmm. everybody was just like, no, I think we should, you know, cut it here and cut it there. But at least bringing the initial idea of being like, this is this is a song that separates it from this song. You know, um, we should make it a band version. And it's I liked bringing a whole a whole other flavor to it other than just what the rapper was bringing as well because he was very just hip hop hip hop and then I knew that I could do hip hop but add extra shit I would like add poly rhythms and shit it was mm -hmm. kind of cool yeah um, you know it was chill so I got into that um, and then when I finally you know completely quit working at the restaurant and immersed myself in music I was like well I need to. I know how to make beats now, let me just start recording rappers. And I started like meeting fucking guys in DC and started doing a little bit of things at my house. And then I got that studio job mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Um, how did that happen? How did, like, what was the studio and how did you get the, the room there? It was a Craigslist ad. Mm. It was a Craigslist ad. It was like hip hop studio in DC in front of Howard University Hospital called Listen Vision Studios. I go and drop off my CD. And uh, I hadn't heard from them for maybe like a month mm. or so, maybe like kind of five weeks. I had kind of given up. And they, they hit me back up and they're like, yo, can you come for a job interview? I was like, sure. Going for the job interview. By the end of the job interview, I'm smoking out of an apple with the owner in the back of the studio. And I was like, okay, I got the job, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, and then from there, I was just in there hours, 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 and hours, and I just got like good at making the beats. I remember that. Was there a particular doll that you started working with when you got your inbox initially? Pro Tools. And did you know it at the time, or did you just kind of teach yeah, yourself? Yes and no. Um, when I was 19, or like right after high school, I did um, a recording engineering course at Omega Studios in Rockville, Maryland. Yeah. Um, I think Marquitis. Marquitis went there, yeah. Went there, right, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then I did like an intro to Pro Tools and um, Pro Tools back then was just like all black and white. And I remember like yeah. nothing what it looks like now. Um, and then I got to learn on a real console. So I already knew, you know, signal flow and, you know, acoustics and whatnot. And I was like, all right, inbox, cool. This is, you know, obviously I'm not, I don't have a studio, so I'm just gonna start with this and got some monitors and made my little home studio. Yeah, that's how, I mean that's how it happens. Yeah, and you piece it together one thing at a time. It's like, it's like you have to go out and buy all the fucking gear at once. Yeah, you know, and 
and learning it was also like I mean I hadn't done any real recording in fucking years um, I was just going off of what I remembered YouTube wasn't around so you couldn't just go in online and like look up shit um, it was a matter it was between like hitting up my homie and just experimenting on Pro Tools and figuring out you know how to resolve the problems that yeah. I was encountering yeah yeah I remember so many of my friends when it became a digital thing way more than an analog thing or using the just the straight up board like I remember so much time spent in the studio was troubleshooting yeah I mean yeah. like I'd be like yeah let's you know we, we recorded this whole drum take and you know we had this song in the works and the producer would take an hour or the engineer would take an hour to figure out like something new on this new technology which eventually now it's like you you have it's like a everybody's well, well yeah and like the people that are good at it are fucking good at it you know they're real good at it um, but I was just curious yeah so okay fast forward now and where you guys are with the band you know we've talked a lot so having Jake on the podcast having Misha on the podcast the only person in the band now who I haven't had from periphery is Spencer and I want to try to get him in in the next day before this tour is over um but you know we talk a lot about band communication band dynamics um how we have learned over the years how to function and you guys have been through different members you know like over over the years you know between, i mean i was very early but like naveen to matt um and auditioning people and Deciding, I'm sure there was at some point where you guys maybe thought of having a bass player and decided not to. I, I don't know if that was ever a real conversation, but I, uh, I, what I'm getting at yeah. is for you, um, and maybe this is a more framed in an, an advice kind of question, is what do you think the most important thing for a band to, as far as communication goes or... or for a band to stay together and have longevity, I guess is my question. What do you think is the most important thing now that you guys have been this unit between you, Matt, and Tosin for how many years? Six? Five, uh, six? Yeah, yeah, six years. Um, I would say uh, treating each other equally. You know, um, when Matt joined early on, we try to you know in include him in a, in a lot of the decision making or a lot of you know. We didn't really hide too much from him. Even though he was a new member, we, we let him know, it's like, look, we're trying to do this to kind of make, try to make you feel like an equal. It's gonna be a long time before you kind of feel like one, because Tosin and I have already known each other by like 15 years at that point or something, you know? Uh, and you guys are both, you're from older. These, yeah, we're older, you know, we're we 10 years together, older. together, right, yeah. We've had, you know, relationships, different bands and different career choices and whatnot. There's real history. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I think early early on, you know, we just try to make it a point to kind of everybody's opinion is, is substantial. Mm -hmm. um, I think being a three-piece has been kind of a, a little blessing when it comes to decision-making also as a band. Um, because there'll be often times where I'll disagree with both of them or they, Tosin will disagree with me and Matt, you know, and we just take it into a vote. Mm -hmm. And we try to, at that point, it's just like, okay, well, I'm in a business with you. I trust you. Um, I trusted your decisions. You, you know, we can we can disagree, but ultimately, we this is a group effort. And if two of us kind of feel one way, 
go with it. If we're wrong, then we all fell down. Mm-hmm. You know? If we're right, we all fucking won. You know? Yeah, you all win. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of something that we've tried to, to focus on, is just really trying to treat each other equally. You know, mm-hmm. Everybody has their fortes, and you know, as far as perception into the world, you know, Tosin's the popular guy, Matt's the fucking crazy drummer guy, you know, I'm just me. And fucking, but inside the band, the dynamic, everybody's pretty much an equal. And, you know, everybody has their forte. Sometimes, you know, if I say something or if I make an executive decision, no one will say anything because they know that I'm in that position to make it or if they need to do it. Yeah. Well, and it just, again, from an outside perspective and, and at the same time, knowing you guys, how I've always perceived the inner workings has been, you know, like you are the business guy. Like I know that you and I have had many conversations about both of our bands because a lot of us in periphery have our fortes too. And, and everybody does business, but you and I have, have definitely talked about ideas. We've, we've talked about our, our bands touring together. We've exchanged text messages about doing this show here, this tour here. And I always perceive you to be the one in the band that's sort of leading that charge. And I know too, just from communicating with you and communicating with our management and our booking agents, it's like you are the point person for, for a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool. I'm curious because I don't really know, like when it comes to the business side, what is everybody's forte? Do you like, is like in periphery, like, What's great about Mark a lot of times in our in our band conversations is that he listens and he's very reserved and he waits till the very end to make his point and usually it's pretty uh, it's pretty profound. Same thing with Jake, you know. Jake is very very good at looking at the big picture but keeping his mouth shut until it's really time to say something. Whereas like me and Misha are both very vocal and very out there and we share our opinions and wear it on our sleeves. And I'm just curious, like if there is these, if there are strengths between the three of you that you really admire. Um, yeah, I think it's like Matt is the more detailed guy. I'm more like the day to day, get it done, figure it out kind of sort of thing. Uh, Tosin is kind of the ideas guy, you know, like, well, it's kind of that way. It's like, I think Tosin has a lot of cool creative ideas. We kind of implement them. Matt is good with numbers and kind of being anal with little details. And, mm-hmm. You know, when he wants to look at merch numbers and bank account numbers, we're like, by all means, you know, do your yeah. thing. You let us know what you find, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, as far as like the bus, hiring the crew, backdrop, you know, all the production stuff, Tosin and Matt just showed up for a show and all that stuff is already done. Because you're doing, you're really handling that stuff. Yeah, you know, that's just the way that I think is just, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm about to go on tour. I know these two dudes aren't going to do it, so I might as well just do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've done enough tours already where, I mean, before it would be like every, you know, there's an email chain and it's like, yo, what lights do you want? What lights do you want? Do you want to do this one? Do you want to do this one? Do you want to do this one? At this point, it's like, whatever I'm just gonna pick the light package it'll be fine you'll look great guys don't worry about it right you know, I'm I'm up there with you I'm trying to look all sick too so got you yeah you know um, and it, that's kind of the, the the way it works that's good though I mean it's it's great it's so awesome to have just three of you guys because 
it's less opinions overall. Well, yeah, you know, when people ask us about, you, you mentioned about bass players and whatnot, um, obviously we could find a sick-ass bass player. I think we've learned that there ben- it's a ben- that's what I was saying about a little, you know, kind of a random blessing to be a three-piece because decision-making is easier. Sure. You know, when yeah. it, when there's no ties. Right. And any musician that we add that we're going to, one personality and their ability is going to come with a lot of ego and a lot of personality. Yeah. So we you know. Guys have, you guys have strong fucking personality. Hell yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when we get pissed, we get fucking pissed, you know. And I think we wouldn't expect that from anybody else that joined the band. Um, but that means more butting heads um and i don't think we want that you know we can i can totally relate to that i mean after nolly exited the band we made a very clear decision that being a five piece is great because of votes right votes votes are great yeah having an odd number i mean you know i it's funny it's such an obvious thing but when i had band happy and we had to build this board of directors we needed an odd number on the board so that there was never a tie um, so, <laughs> which is, uh, which is, which is really interesting now that Periphery is in the position to have five members, you know, and have very strong personalities, but it's great to know that one, as you said, everybody's an equal and two, it's a democracy in that sense. And you just kind of have to go with the vote and trust each other. Yeah. I mean, and trust the strengths, you know, some, there'll be a decision that's wrong at one point and you know, the band lost a lot of money to collectively and hey, yeah. that's a decision that we did together and sometimes we make a lot of money together, you know, so. Yeah. It's um, like sports, it's like, you know, like somebody goes on the field and kicks a shitty field goal and loses the game, but the whole team contributed to the whole loss of the game, right. you know, so you can't blame that one one person, so that's interesting. Um, so we have, there's a, there's a bunch of questions that, that came in for you too, um, some of which we've already kind of covered but I, I want to dig into a couple here um, so from uh, from the podcast's very good friend Kevin the drummer Gorin um, who's who's been actually on the podcast as well he wanted to know uh, what do you do to stay busy career career wise when you're not on tour do you still do session work do you do lessons ever obviously you have your side projects like what do you do to keep yourself busy off the road uh, I mainly try to write music you know, exercise and look for new, new in, like inspirations. Really, like I try to listen. I try to go to concerts a lot. Um, I try to find new music. I'm constantly on like new music. You know, hunt. Mm-hmm. I think I think my attention span for for music is sh- shorter than, than it's ever been. You Me know, too. like I can't listen to. A city more than three, four times. Now you know I, I, I don't have the same effect that I used to have. Um, so I'm constantly seeking new music. Um, Is there speaking of that? So like uh, one of our uh, group members asked. Uh, his name's Josh Hampf. Asked, "Is there a list of albums that are unrelated to metal that have had a profound effect, or even just newer music right now T- that you're digging?" Tigran Hamasian, yeah. Mock Root, um, yeah. James Blake. Um, I think it's phenomenal. Noisia, um, which is like 
you know, drum and bass. Crazy drum and bass. Crazy yeah, drum awesome. and bass. Um, Yamandu Costa is a classical guitar player. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, most music that I listen to is not metal. So, yeah. Yeah, me too. It's funny that how, how that works. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, here's a question specifically about your side project. Do you think you'll ever make more music as Misty's? Um, and if so, you know, would you like to collaborate with other people or feature other people on that album? Uh, yes and yes. Um, cool. I'm currently working on new music and currently talking with certain people to probably be on that album as well. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. I'm excited for that. I remember when you put out the first record, it was just such a... It was such a cool uh, experience hearing your soul take on that creation. Yeah, you know, because I hear I hear it in Animals as Leaders, and I know that there's songs that are heavier influenced by what you do. But it's nice to hear your thing. Yeah, well, the crazy thing about it too, like I mean, like I was saying earlier, I had I was not planning on being in a metal band. Like I was good with metal. Like, I was like, fuck. I mean, I wanted to go, when I auditioned for, I remember auditioning for Perfect being like, I'm just trying to meet these fools. Like, I don't know why I was calling it an audition. I'm like, I just want to meet them. Um, and so when I was, you know, we started writing Waylist and it was just like, man, I don't, I'm not, I don't really know how to write this shit anymore. Like, I forgot how to write metal. Um, so, you know, part of me still kind of feels that way. I mean, I don't know if Animals Leader is completely metal. Most of the stuff that I tend to write is like not really metal. We no. we metalify the 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 riffs, but it tends to not really be metal. So you know, I think the first Misty's was definitely like a, an attempt to at being like, all right, well, how do I put all this classical shit that I know how to do into this new world that I'm participating in now? Right. You know, I'm like this guitar guy. In this metal scene, it's also Prague, but I like playing classical. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I was just trying to figure out how to do. I love yeah. watching you play classical music. You can come freaking serenade me with your classical guitar playing anytime you want. Okay. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> it really is. Like, I'll tour whenever you want. I, I should have brought a classical on this tour. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't. Yeah, we could actually have it as part of our, our podcast if you did. Um, but no, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, it's funny, and, and reading through these questions, I mean, we really pretty much covered it all just throughout the conversation itself. Um, one one other question that I have for you in a more business realm is the guitar stuff. You know, like, so a question that, that I see come through a lot, either in lessons or just with other artists that we've worked with, is all about endorsements. Right, and how do you, how do you, how do I get an endorsement? How do I get a signature guitar? How do I do this? And I'm curious as to what your take is on it. I've shared mine, but you know. Um, well, when I got my endorsement, I think it, it was kind of the start of. I don't even think Instagram was around. It was MySpace and Facebook. Um, Maybe YouTube was kind of just starting. Yeah. Um, you kind of needed to be touring. Right. You needed to be, you know, in a touring band to to be endorsed. Um, I think more recently you're starting to see 
people who don't tour being endorsed were like internet people. I mean, Luke Holland, you know, he kind of started off as just this internet guy doing drum covers. Yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, and then he he joined. Minel. Um, oh, oh, well, he, yeah, the Word Alive. The, he joined the Word Alive sure. and then became an, an uh, you know uh, a touring artist. But by that point, he already had all the endorsements. Right. You know what I mean? Like he. Right was set up you know so there's the same thing with a lot of good you know there's um i think e-rock or something like that with esp he does a bunch of covers and he's just this dude on the internet he's fully endorsed probably makes a lot of money you know Mm -hmm. um it's different now um i think being a touring musician you still can can get endorsements but i think i think the internet is kind of taken over you know i think you need to being a touring musician, you still need to have internet presence, you know, to get that proper endorsement and that sweet deal. Because um, if you're just a touring musician, whatever, like, that's not the the peak right now. I think it's the the internet presence. It's what kind of dictates where your band can play, if it's going to go on tour or not, or if you're going to get endorsements or not, mm-hmm. or if you're going to sell CDs or not. I think that internet presence is kind of the big thing I did a few clinics in, in South America and people were asking the same thing they're like you know how or asking how do you you know break out and become a thing and I was like truthfully I think the internet is the, the main most effective and efficient way of you know doing it you can reach everybody you can reach everybody I mean yeah. I remember having to fucking give out flyers and hand out CDs and tapes Cassette mm-hmm. tapes at like you know nine thirty club in DC. Shot man. I remember. I hated that. I was talking about that at lessons today. Um, when I was teaching, now, I was explaining like I used to go to Warp Tour with a stack of CDs and try to just get people to listen to like a song and then try to sell it for five bucks and they'd be like, I don't, I only got two and I'd sell it for two bucks and just like Terrible. hustle, 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 pass out flyers, come see my right. show. Yeah, it's not it's not like that anymore. And it's so it's such a tiny level of people that you can get you know or a tiny amount of people that you can get versus the internet where if somehow you can create some visual you know thing to your song and make it somewhat viral in any you know form all of a sudden you're having people all over the world you know looking at it which is hard to do but it i stemming from that just around that particular small point out is i always preach authenticity like just literally being yourself to the best of your ability and being honest, especially lately, the more honest someone can be about their journey, I think the better. So like if I were starting a channel right now, I would start my channel by saying to anyone listening, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to reach this goal and I'm scared to do it and I know it's going to be hard but I want feedback from you and I would love you to be involved in the process. And as I put out videos, please critique it. Please share it if you like it, but please be honest with me and communicate. And I think people need to communicate directly with their audience as they're releasing the content that they're releasing. And that going back to the endorsement thing will create such a direct connection between why a company would want to endorse or, or, or sponsor you. Because if you have an audience that is engaged and is paying attention to what you're doing, then that audience is probably going to care about the gear that you're using as well. And that company is going to be way more excited to, to give you gear to play um, than anybody else. And, and 
it's funny you mentioned the touring thing because the, the analogy that I was using earlier was like, you know, there are drummer friends of mine who tour and play in stadiums, like with huge artists. Right. But when you have a company, for example, like Minel Symbols, Minel Symbols probably wouldn't endorse that artist or that drummer anywhere near or, or rather give as much support to that drummer. They would endorse him, but they wouldn't necessarily give as much support as they would someone like Matt Garska. Absolutely. Even though that Matt Garska is playing with animals as leaders in a place like we're playing tonight, which is much, much, much smaller than a stadium. But it's because the, the type base. of audience, yeah, the yeah. fan base, their drummers, their musicians in general, and they're engaged and it makes sense. And I think, um, I guess that's the, the, the sweet spot. I think metal. The, I think that's been like a, a like a benefit of metal to the industry. I mean, metal is probably one of the least grossing music, you know, styles of music in in the country. You have country, pop, hip hop, electronic, whatever the fuck, right? But still, if like for events like Nam, the guitar section is still a massive like one of the most prog metal that's what it is and it's one of the more like you know highlight things of the of the whole fucking and you know, whenever you go to a show they have some guitarist with some bassist and some drummer you know and it's it, who are just shredders you know um but i think metal has just allowed you know people have always wanted to become faster double bass being a slap bass player or sweeper um, the fan, like the what, like the what's the word I'm looking for? The the interest that people have, and you know, in that genre is essentially like tied to the fucking music makers, the instrument makers. Right. Yeah. The you gear know? is so important. It's completely. Everything. I mean, there'll be there's probably drummers that don't like certain bands for using certain gears. Oh yeah. You know what I mean, like. Totally. Using certain amps or certain guitars, it's like it just doesn't work. But it's very specific, and they have their fans, and it works for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what the gear that we use is very specific to us, and I'm sure it's not wouldn't sound great if we were in a death metal band. Right. You know. Like, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the whole signature thing, you know, I've witnessed now with my guitar players and like having signature products and so forth. It's such a, that's the other question. It's like, how do I get a signature guitar? How do I get a signature snare drum? How do I get signature sticks? And it's like, you got to ask for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's just, it has to make sense, you know, like, I mean, I think there's way, way more successful guitar players that probably, you know, in some regards could deserve a signature guitar. But I have a signature guitar, but it, like it's what you're saying, the audience that is attached to, you know, or my demographic, you know, that's attached to the band and the scene is just cares so much about gear versus the guy who's playing all these pop gigs, you know, who, who the people, that audience doesn't give a fuck about what the band is playing. You know? Yeah, not as much for sure. And, but, but what, what's so cool is that, um, it's, it, it's based off of the musical credibility that you have, which is a testament to your ability as a guitar player. If you weren't 
you couldn't be in this band if you weren't a fantastic musician. And that is a really cool thing. When a fan chooses to buy your signature guitar, it's typically because of the way that you make it sound and the parts you play and it inspires them to want to learn how to do what you're doing. And that's really cool because a lot of people say, oh, you know, jazz is dead or like, you know, musicians, you know, aren't really as important as icons, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. But, but I believe that in our world, the iconic musicians are the ones that have that unique ability to be good at their instrument, which is so just different than what you see in the pop world or yeah, in some elements of the rock world. And it's funny because we know people that are in the rock world, in the pop world, who look at us, look at us, and like, damn. And it's yeah, cool. I want to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. Like, well, you're hella way more paid than I am, dude. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> can we switch this to where we get paid per note that we play, versus you know, versus what they're doing? But yeah, it's 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 really cool. Um, well, shit. So we're coming up on an hour and a half. Is there anything else that you in particular want to? want to talk about or promote or share or discuss or anything like that no i feel like that's a lot yeah there's a lot for people to digest yeah stay, you know just keep up on the, all the socials yeah so where can people find you in particular uh on instagram it's j javier reyes s so it's javier reyes with an extra j in the front and an s at the end or facebook um animalsleaders.org mestizemusic.com Cool. Yeah, and we'll post all that stuff um, <clears throat> when we post this episode. Um, so that's awesome. Well, I'm glad we got to talk because as much as I know you and as close of friends as we are because of the situations we've been in, it's nice to actually hear a bit more of your story that I didn't really know some of that about. So it's very cool. That tends to happen in these podcast conversations. You end up learning more about somebody and you get closer and it's kind of, it's good. Um, it can be therapeutic in some ways too, but I don't know if we dug deep into that stuff. It was good. It was good. Um, but yeah, so for those of you guys that stuck through to the end, um, thank you as always for listening. Uh, it's, it's a privilege for myself, for my partners, Jordan and Justin, and for our guests to be able to get to share anything about our lives with, with you guys. And the fact that you give a shit enough to listen for an hour and a half of your time really means the world to us. Um, so many of you now have, uh, sort of been hip to our Facebook group and have joined up. So I just want to take a, a brief second to promote that. So we have a Facebook group for the Chocolate Croissants podcast. The address is facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. And we talk about this every week, but there is just such an amazing amount of positive engagement that, that goes on there. People asking questions, looking for answers and getting support and answers. Um, we post about our guests that we're going to be having weekly and um, we get questions from the audience for guests like you, Javier. Um, it's, it's such a positive community of people that are willing to help each other, that are trying to help each other, that are trying to stay involved. And um, if you are listening and you aren't aware of this group, please just take a second to, to hop on your Facebook page, check it out. Um, it's a private group, but if you uh, ask to join, we'll definitely accept you. And you don't have to be fully engaged. You can just kind of see what's going on, um, or you can you know be super, super active and, and get involved in all the conversations, which there are certain certainly many of them going on. Um, and lastly, as always, you know, any, uh, feedback that we can get from our audience is uh, is 
really, really appreciated. So uh, whether you consume uh, your podcast media through your phone or through some other medium, um, you know, typically I listen to all my podcasts on, uh, on iTunes. So if you're like me, if you uh, don't subscribe to the podcast yet, hop onto your uh, your iTunes app, your podcast app, search for Chocolate Croissants, you can hit the subscribe button, and then every Monday when we release a new episode, uh, hopefully while you're asleep with your Wi-Fi, the episode will download, and then you won't have to worry about using up your data when you listen to the, the podcast. And as always, again, any feedback you can give us in the form of a review or a rating really helps us. Um, and please be honest. Tell us what we can do better. Tell us what guests you want to see. Uh, tell us how we suck because you know this is definitely something that we're trying to hone as a craft, and we want to we, we want to be the best that we can. So um, the feedback we've gotten so far has been fantastic, and we look forward to hearing more from you. So with that being said, thank you to Javier. Um, we got a show to play tonight, so um, we probably got to get ready for that. But uh, in the words of Mr. Jordan Goodman, we're going to see you guys later. And as always, bye-bye. Jordan here again. You know, I've done a lot. I do a lot. But if bye-bye ends up becoming my legacy, I think I'd be okay with that. We're at the end of episode 35. I just want to say thank you for your attention. As always, we are grateful for it. We appreciate it and we love you for it. And we are also grateful, appreciative, and love Rode Microphones as well. R-O-D-E dot com. They have hooked us up before episode one, which meant they put a lot of trust and faith into us uh, with their audio equipment. We uh, started with the Procasters, and that's what we do when it's more formal. Um, I'm using the NT-USB mic right now uh, because I am not at home, and that's what Matt used for this episode, uh, being on tour. Very simple. Just hooking it up into the laptop, and you're good to go. Uh... If you have an iPhone, you want better audio. You have a video camera, you want better audio. Uh, if you have your own podcast, if you're recording music, whatever it may be, Rode microphones uh, can hook you up with your audio needs very professionally. And they're from Australia, so that counts for something, right? R-O-D-E-M-I-C, Rode Mic on Facebook and Instagram. Check them out. Uh, or more simply, R-O-D-E dot com. That is it. We will be back next week with episode 36. I will see you in the Facebook group this week. Uh, seriously, if you're not in there, join. And if you don't have Facebook, uh, eh, yeah, I, I can understand. But seriously, Facebook offers a lot, uh, mostly the Chocolate Croissants Facebook group. Hope to see you in there this week. Uh, and I will see you next week, wherever you are, wherever I may be. Much love, and always. Bye-bye.